Welcome to Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. This is the podcast where we explore the people and stories that make up the tech and venture ecosystem. Don't forget to subscribe, like, rate, and share the podcast because it really helps us get the word out to more people who are curious about understanding even more about the world of venture capital. This season of Nothing Ventured is sponsored by Odin. Odin helps angels, VCs, and founders to raise and deploy capital seamlessly. You can structure your SPVs and now run your funds, handle capital calls, portfolio management more smoothly and easily in one place. Founders use Odin to raise their entire round in a few clicks by simply sending investors a link and receiving investments immediately. Odin works with over 5,000 investors and over 150 emerging fund managers and angel syndicates globally. Head to joinodin.com to learn more. That's J-O-I-N-O-D-I-N.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I was super excited to have with me in the studio, Sam Benny. Sam is the founder of Platin, a platform that reimagines networking with advanced AI that curates your connections for meaning and value, unlocking networking's full potential. Prior to founding Platin, Sam was head of innovation at Tech Nation and had founded and exited multiple deep tech ventures. In today's episode, we talked about leaving Iran and being without status here in the UK for four years. Uh, the reality of entrepreneurship, Sam living on his office couch uh, for a uh, three years. We talk about complex AI, the convergence of complex systems or complexity in systems and AI, and has open AI killed the internet? Finally, we talked about separating the social from social media at Platin. Let's get straight into it. Hello and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I have with me in the studio, Sam Benny. Uh, if you haven't had the chance yet, do check out our primer episode where Sam talks a little bit about his background uh, and some of the stuff that's really exciting him at the moment. But we are going to get into a bit of the detail that we didn't discuss in that primer episode right now. But for the time being, Sam, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Amazing. Well, look, we're going to dive straight in and I appreciate this is probably quite quite a difficult topic, but you've had an incredible uh, and non-traditional background, right? Having come to the UK essentially as a refugee. Can you talk us through your experience and how that has informed your journey into venture and all the things that you've done thereafter? Of course, um, for um, various reasons, unfortunately, I had to flee my homeland mm -hmm. uh, where I was born in Iran. And I came to UK alone when I was 17, um, illegally. Um, as an asylum seeker, mm -hmm. right? And so I. Um, so wait, wait. Let, just to clarify, the routes you came down were illegal. You, you yourself were not illegal. Well, it's uh, it's a grey area. Well, it depends illegal. if you're talking to uh, Swella yeah, Exactly. Not, if right? you're if you're speaking to the government, uh, they would see it differently. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I have uh, applied for asylum upon my um, arrival, mm -hmm. and I was 17. Uh, I was wow. 17. I came to UK alone and uh, applied for asylum. Uh, and here, here I was um, in the UK and um, had to figure out kind of what's next. And um, I was quite proud of myself, quite frankly, because um, I didn't believe that I should ask for help because um, although the government supports individuals who come this way, uh, but I never asked for it, uh, to be honest with you, because I was quite proud that I don't want that, right? Um, and... However, because of um, overall, like the legal situation that mm -hmm. exists, 
um, usually they should kind of like give you a response around your asylum case around six months. Mm -hmm. And mine, um, although I didn't know it at the time, uh, I've got a hindsight now, took over almost four years. Wow. So what that means is that for four years, I couldn't open a bank account. Um, I couldn't study. I couldn't work. uh, Nothing. Mm. Um, So for all purposes, I didn't exist. Yeah. So for um, lack of better option, although I was lucky, and I always say this, is it's not my skills, it's not my um, you know privilege in any shape or form. I was just lucky, right? Someone else in my shoes, if they didn't have access to some entrepreneurs, which I would say, you know, there is a higher chance for me to sit here with you talking mm-hmm. about AI and futurology than actually when you go down serve your kebab in a kebab shop. To be honest with you, sure. Uh, but in, in, in this case, what has changed for me was that, um, you know, a friend of mine um, who I was quite connected with the internet, believe it or not, actually doing some philosophy uh, course, um, called me and said, like, he knows about my situations. Shout out to Ash, uh, who became my first co-founder. He called me and said, like, hey, I, uh, I know your situation, Sam. Um, I'm thinking to start a, a tech company. Would you like to move in to Birmingham and, uh, you know, uh, I'll be custodian of your shares and we start this company together. Wow. And I said, dude, I have no other option. <laughs> I can't do anything. Whatever. I'm in. Right. So I moved to Birmingham to um, start this, you know, sleeping on his couch. Wow. And um, him being custodian of my shares. And uh, we started Webinlog, which was kind of like pi to AWS really blew up, um, which was web infrastructure providing VPS to SMEs, yeah. building their applications and so on. And it worked out, you know, we hired uh, several um, developers and engineers and I was a kind of a young entrepreneur without a visa, <laughs> without any <laughs> without paperwork, yeah. without a bank. Although I was working uh, in my own company, although I didn't have any shares because my shares were uh, kind of like owned by my co-founder. Um, so, I, I mean, apart from anything else, just a huge amount of trust, right? Oh, yeah, you, of course. I mean, uh, I did not have any other option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but shout out to Ash, uh, who's an uh, amazing founder now. He's running his own um, fintech right now. And so we started this company together, and um, it was a great experience with a third co-founder who was finishing his PhD in University of Birmingham. And um, I learned more and more about entrepreneurship, um, about uh, engineering, about developers. You know, I suddenly found myself managing the developers and I didn't know uh, whether they're lying to me or not. Uh, they're delaying uh, because they say something. So I had to learn um, programming, coding and stuff like that to be able to manage them. And that was my uh, journey into entrepreneurship. And so talk me through kind of how you then kind of came through the asylum system, right? Yeah, because sure. presumably... You're doing all of this stuff to your point. You're having to do it not under the radar, but you're having to do it in a way that doesn't breach the terms of your uh, of your of your status. Right? Of course. Uh, but that could have been like, given the stories that we hear today, it could have just been an ongoing situation for and, you know, to your point, four years is already remarkable, but could have even lasted longer. So how, how like talk, talk me through how you passed through the system and, and kind of the feeling and the sentiment that you had once once that happened? Of course. Um, well, the, just, to, just to update for that first venture, right? Um, you know, we decided to kind of move on and uh, started kind of another venture mm. around um, renewable energy. We're too early, right? Mm. This is not kind of like the green uh, revolution we're living right now. Uh, we're talking about a decade ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, that's really 
was a slow death of that company. I ended up slipping in my office on the couch for three years. Wow. Um, and during that moment, you know, I said like enough is enough. So um, kind of like through some advice and uh, through discussion with lawyers, um, decided to sue the UK government. Believe it or not. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I won in the courts. So they had two weeks to give me um, the positive kind of like but could they not? Could could that not have backfired on you? Could they? Oh, yeah, of the... course, they could um, decline, and yeah. I should have been forcibly uh, removed and yeah. deported to a country that uh, most likely would have had severe consequences on me, wow. uh, which I'm uh, again uh, unfortunately unable to get in. And um, so yeah, it, it could have backfired for sure, right? But I didn't have any other option mm. again, uh, and in this case. Um, I pushed forward and it worked um, and um, fortunately I arrived there and believe it or not actually uh, which was quite interesting I remember going to the court and um, the home office lawyers um, the, the main lawyer of the home office um, um, the gentleman was blind so he couldn't read the documents I provided because it was in in, in, in bright to, yeah. to be able to read it so therefore the whole court kind of like lasted maybe four minutes wow. because no information could be provided mm. and um, after two weeks i received my refugee status amazing and now and so you are now a fully fledged sort of british citizen or oh yeah so that was a while ago yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after living here almost 12 years um last year actually um last year i got my british citizenship so i'm i'm one of the brits now so congratulations got, thank you very much Waving the Union Jack. Uh, so, um, yeah, I've got my British passport. Yeah. I mean, so many thoughts come come to mind just, you know, listening to that story. I think, you know, we all know that certainly within technology businesses or in, in venture in general, there are actually lots of uh, stats about outcomes for migrant founders right in, in positive outcomes like in in terms of the success of their businesses and this is often because migrants come with a with a mentality that entrepreneurship is the only way they can you know they can survive which is exactly you know for you was exactly what it was right um so i i like it's i don't even know how to put this like do you think had you had you had been granted asylum like day one on arrival in the uk or very shortly thereafter do you think you would have been pushed down this entrepreneurial path in the same way obviously not in the same way but you know with the same sort of uh, i guess approach that you ended up taking which was just embrace it wholeheartedly and kind of make it make it your life this season of nothing ventured is proudly sponsored by emerge one emerge one provides fractional cfo support to venture-backed tech startups and scale-ups they work with businesses from C to Series B that have been backed by some of the UK, US and Europe's best venture capital funds. They provide support from capital allocation and management, KPIs and reporting, fundraising support, financial modeling, investor relations and investor management. Come check them out at emergeone.co.uk when you're scaling fast and have need of a CFO. I think it's a great question, right? Because I think innovation always comes out of frustration. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, I think entrepreneurship is a form of innovation, right? Mm. Because you find a specific problem and you want to solve it, right? So in this case, if, um, you know, we go back and in a, um, you know, perhaps a 
uh, in multiverse there's a universe that's um being granted kind of like my refugee status upon kind of like after a month or some so yeah some sort. so probably not uh i'll be honest with you because most likely i would have um gone forward with my passion at the time which was design you yeah. know most likely i would have been a designer of some sort um i became an entrepreneur for lack of better option yeah. i did not want to follow my father's footsteps you know because being an entrepreneur is not easy you know i mean i know it's romanticized especially in uh, you know, recent years, uh, when we started, that was not the case, you know, when we started. Uh, especially uh, in Birmingham, you're yeah. in the office three years, sleeping on a couch. That is not a story that you hear much of in the UK. For sure. Quite frankly, that was not the case when we started our first company, right? Uh, we heard it so many times, uh, people saying that, like, you know, you guys have started this company because you couldn't find a job. <laughs> you know, that was the mentality. Yeah. And, and to be honest, it still is a little bit here in the UK. We don't, we don't treat entrepreneurship with the same gusto that they do in the u.s right like in the u.s it's a badge of honor to be a founder to be an entrepreneur it's even a badge of honor you know if you found a company try and scale it and fail like people don't look down on you in fact if anything they, they see that as like okay this guy has this person has has learned and has grown and has you know navigated situations where many people won't have whereas in the uk i think you know, there's still this massive stigma around failure and especially business failure, right? Even if you look at the press and, you know, sadly, and we'll get on to Tech Nation in a second, but, you know, uh, when Tech Nation went under, there was a lot of negative press around that. Mm. But equally, uh, when you think about things like the Future Fund, which, you know, was a really massive, like for as much as I am, I, I try and be as apolitical as possible, but I don't love the current government, but I think some of the stuff that they have done, especially during the pandemic, was really valuable. I think the Future Fund, you know, without it, we'd have seen a lot more businesses go to the wall a lot quicker. And I think it's really frustrating to see, you know, stuff in the press, like, you know, government has spaffed 100 million or whatever the number is. Of, of taxpayer monies up the, up the wall because the reality is that again venture doesn't work like that right it's that it's it's the it's the outliers that pay for everything right and if you're if you've just got one or two or you know uh, maybe half a dozen of those outliers in that portfolio it more than makes up for 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 all the losses elsewhere but here in the uk we just we just don't have that i think it's the problem the mentality yeah. uh, i'm totally with you right the mindset quite yeah. frankly you know because uh when when i speak to investors uh, and compare the investors, especially in the Europe or UK, um, yeah. to American ones, right? Uh, in the US, when you pitch, they want to see how big you can go, right? What is the upside for them, mm -hmm. right? Here is all about like managing risks. Mm -hmm. It's like, but what if this happens? What I mean, that's that's not how it works in technology entrepreneurship. You know, that doesn't work like that. However, that's the mentality, and I think the problem here is that because. We had a late start, quite yeah. frankly, with you, because US, that was the mentality of entrepreneurship long before. From the 60s onwards. Yeah. yeah. And here is just quite recent, right? And, um, you know, just a decade ago, we had only six unicorns, right? Yeah. And now we've got 145 of them. Yeah. Um, but again, it was a decade ago, only six. Mm. Um, and the key question is that what has changed? I think the, the change is that those people who exited became, you know, operators and then got into VCs and so on. But historically, who are the VCs that are non-operators? They're, they're money managers, yeah. They're money managers, bankers, uh, consultants. Mm -hmm. uh, and they never, ever been in the trenches of entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't have the expectation for them to understand it, to be honest. So what they do, they bring the same mentality of risk management to the venture, which doesn't work. Quite yeah, frankly. it's 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 
contrary to the way venture should work. Venture is not about minimizing risk, it's no. about maximizing upside, right? So let's uh, let's switch tack for a second. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I'm, I'm sure it, it's not easy. I'm sure you've talked about it many times but as well, though. Without... Believe it or not, I didn't say it. So even some of my co-founders and recent co-founders didn't know uh, up until kind of like I got my British citizenship, uh, which I was like, I think it's probably the time. And I posted it on LinkedIn, and to my surprise, I think like three hundred thousand people seen it, and so it's just crazy, just I'm, blown up. I, I mean, I I met you, I think three, maybe four months ago. I think yeah. it was just before summer. Uh, I think within the first hour, <laughs> I think I probably knew knew that about you. So thank you so much for That's... sharing it. And look, I mean, I think you know these are the stories that should be inspiring for people, right? Like, so so if you are a seventeen-year-old refugee asylum status can't work can't study can't earn a living you know people who sit there and say i can't do it you can you've just got to figure out the right way for you and yes it it will be hard no one says entrepreneurship is easy no. it is bloody hard uh you know those of us that that have been through the mill i think recognize the difficulty some of us wear scars as a result of it some of us have come out the other side stronger maybe for it but you know, there is no, there is no, I think, experience like founding your own business. But you have to have, you have to be able to back yourself, right? You have to, you have to be able to take the time to really think about what you want for yourself and uh, and and make it happen. And I think, you know, obviously, to some extent, it was forced upon you, but it's unleashed the whole history of your of your last you know decade as a result you know you, you've created cbdc's for for central governments and god knows what else <laughs> maybe we shouldn't talk too much about that but you know you've done a lot of stuff so changing tact like you were at tech nation right which is it's also a big deal you're the head of innovation there so but you were there when they lost their funding from the government right yes. which I, I think a lot of us in the tech and venture community were shocked at i think we were even more shocked by by the fact that you know that th that funding was then given to a commercial uh, entity i have no idea whether barclays and eagle labs will do uh you know w would do the right thing the wrong thing i have no judgment on them but you know one would have to expect that a commercial entity will work very different from from a from an organization like tech nation which was really just sort of a really a, a full public good kind of organization and you know, part of the problem there was was the fact that there was no other source of funding. Therefore, it was a very swift kind of uh, decline. But can you talk us through as much as you're able to what sure. happened from your perspective and and then the outcomes that we've seen since? And how do you see government policy shaping the future of tech in the UK? And here I'm thinking about things like visa programs, what they've done to R&D of late, then yep. also the SEIS regimes. I'd love to get your perspective, having kind of been in tech nation and seen that really, you know, from from the ground up. Of course, um, I still believe that was a wrong decision mm -hmm. by the UK government. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, because Technation was built uh, by a UK government for that specific reason, mm -hmm. right? a, a non-profit organization. Mm -hmm. And yet um, making that decision, uh, I think it was a wrong decision personally, mm -hmm. uh, but yet we are here and we are in the consequences of that. But um, I have to give a massive, massive uh, shout out to all the ex-Technationers uh, making you know today's uh, UK tech uh, possible, right? Yeah. For the past decades, right now, whether it was a tech city or later on became tech nation, uh, with their help, you know, with their support, with their building uh, this ecosystem of peer-to-peer -peer network, uh, we've got these amazing founders uh, coming back again and again, right? Um, so huge, huge shout out to them. Uh, 
But the good news is that Technation, at least the brand of Technation, is not dead. So Technation 2.0 is coming back. Yeah, and it was bought out by Brent Hoveman and Founders correct. Forum and, and, and uh, his organization. Yeah. Uh, not to the same extent of power that Technation was, uh, but it's coming back and still supports the founders. I think the good news for the founders in this case is that they have more options, mm -hmm. right? Although it's not as centralized as Technation was. Uh, to be able to support the founders, but they've got more options when it comes to, as you mentioned, Barclays Eagle Labs, uh, or for example, Technation 2.0, uh, or um, other uh, perhaps uh, supportive organizations for the entrepreneurs, which is always good. Yeah. Um, however, what happened specifically uh, during the time of Technation it was a quite an experience, I have to say, because the last thing I thought was that Technation will go down. I never. I don't that. think any of us expected that to happen. Yeah. I did not. Uh, in fact, uh, I went on um, hiring teams um, towards the end of last year, mm -hmm. um, giving them hope um, that this is this is just gonna pass. You know, we we're gonna move forward and selling the vision, and um, you know, I felt responsible afterwards of selling a vision of something that. I didn't know that would go down. Right? So, so, and in fact, let's dig into that for a second, because I think you've mentioned this to me in the past. Like there was, it wasn't very transparent what was, what happened, like as in you got the news when everyone got the news, right? There was no sort of warning. There was no, there was no, there was no lead up or build up that, that suggested that this was going to happen. I think we all learned at Technation on the same day that the news uh, wow. was given to the public. Um, so, uh, it's unfortunate what has happened, and um, but the good news is that Technation uh, soul, the the overall spirit is uh, is alive mm -hmm. uh, within the founders themselves. As I've graduated, I, I received thousands of messages from uh, Technation alums and uh, ecosystem players, um, you know, supporting and saying like they would like to carry on, um, you know, the mission of Technation as well as Technation on their um, founders forum. Um, leadership that um, is is being led. Um, I think that's a that's a positive outcome out of what has happened. Quite yeah, frankly, yeah. I mean, I would say what would be even more positive if that the whole thing didn't happen. Hadn't have happened in the process, uh, yeah. Sure. But yeah, at the end of the day, um, you know, we are we are in this situation. Right? Mm -hmm. I think there were some um, misunderstanding in decision makers within the UK government. Mm -hmm. I personally believe that um, you know the problem. I personally, I think this is again I have to repeat it yeah, yeah. multiple times. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're not few, speaking on the behalf of no, either I'm not, Tech Nation or anyone else. I'm your, not talking behalf of anyone. Very much your personal opinion. Absolutely. Sure. Um, few decision makers in the UK government have absolutely no idea what scale-up is. Mm. They either think startups with one or two people in it or corporates with thousands of people. They don't know what they... They have no idea journey. what's in the middle. Mm. And majority of the companies are in the middle. And those are the people that need help, right? And they have no idea how it works. Absolutely no idea. Uh, and that, that was the problem. So taking kind of a lead from that, because I have lots of thoughts about how the UK government has approached sort of these issues. You know, I talked earlier about how great it was that we had the Future Fund that was set up, which actually, you know, was spearheaded by Brent originally and yeah. Dom Hallis and others. But, you know, we've equally seen, you know, this sort of almost you know, just, uh, I, I can't even describe it, but, you know, the the, the chopping of R&D funding or, or the R&D tax credit, rather, which I appreciate the rationale of there being, you know, 
fraudulent activity or you know potentially fraudulent claims being made i don't think it was as high as as maybe it was purported to be or rather the numbers may have been big but the actual number of kind of um of, of fraudulent claims was probably not that big i think the 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 problem is it was like a we'll take an axe to everything we'll cut we'll cut the knees out of everyone rather than just targeting the perpetrators so again that to me stifles innovation like a, a lot of businesses you know, we work with obviously a lot of startups and scale-ups in, in, in my business. You know, that R&D for a lot of them, it, it, not a lifeline, but it's often, you know, it's something that you kept up your, your sleeve, your back pocket so that, uh, you know, you always, you always knew that there was uh, a bit of additional runway to kind of make things better. Uh, it feels like that's a very heavy-handed approach. I think the SEIS, loosening of the SEIS rules or not loosening, but, you know, increasing the, the, uh, the allocation is great. Um, and equally, you know, some of the rules around now pensions being able to allocate more into venture. Again, great, but but it just feels like there isn't a coherent policy around tech and venture in this country. And then, you know, we've had people like Neil Sharon from the London Stock Exchange Group and then, you know, others like Hussein Kanji who are vehemently kind of, you know, in no way, shape or form are they anti kind of the, the London Stock Exchange or anything like that, but they just don't believe that here in the UK and Europe, we're set up for success uh, in the same way as the US. So this is why we see so many of our companies, you know, decamping, heading over to the US and and, and listing because the rules uh, and, and equally the mentality, I think, of a lot of the, the pools of capital here is just not there to support tech businesses. So I, I guess, I don't know, I don't know what my question really is, but I, I think maybe what I'm trying to ask is, do you think that the government certainly at the moment is showing a, you know, it, it, is it showing that they have an understanding of and the interests of this sort of the tech ecosystem in mind? Or do you think it's sort of a bit haphazard? I think they're going in the right direction, to be honest with you, because uh, forever we had this situation of uh, tech in the UK government being divided between two different uh, ministries, yeah. DCMS and BASE. Yeah. That was a huge, huge headache for everyone, mm. right? And they fixed it, which is great. And to be honest, I think uh, Minister George Freeman is the only, as, as far as I know, is the only minister um, that has ever, um, from a background of venture, got it. that's gone into politics, actually. Other than maybe Rishi Sunak, I mean, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah. kind of, ish. Ish. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's, a, that's this is a good progress, mm. I would say. Mm. Um is it enough? I mean, when it comes to politics, it's never enough. Never enough, yeah. yeah. Uh, but is it is a good direction? I think it was the right decision to be able to combine those uh, two ministries together. And we are moving towards the right direction. I think especially like building up a uh, new office for quantum technologies is the right decision. Having, you know, a strengthening office for AI is the right decision. These are right decisions, right? To make UK the superpower of science and innovation. These are definitely the right decisions. However, uh, there are some wrong decisions, <laughs> as always with politics. Um, again, you know, we we talk about some of the. I think this is this is something that goes behind page two, page three of BBC, most likely. Uh, but one of the things that is being discussed quite a lot is the uh, online safety bill. Yeah. And the online safety bill, uh, basically, uh, I know I completely understand it from. You know, when it comes to specifics on um, the safety of individuals, we know that for sure, um, you know, social media such as Facebook should have been regulated from day one. You know that directly, um, you know, um, suicides of teenagers are directly are, uh, yep. correlated with 
uh, use the social media Instagram. exactly with Instagram and so on. Uh, we know that um, pedophiles uh, are operating on these social medias. We yeah. all we know all of that. But is the answer um, completely removing uh, encryption of internet? No. Uh, I'm not sure. No. I think that's not the answer. Yeah, it's it's sort of again, it's it's uh, it, it's a bit like the R and D. It's taking a very heavy handed approach rather than finding a central ground that maybe resolves it. Um, Again, changing tack now, because I know this is something that you're really passionate about. You are an international speaker on complex AI. Can you talk me through what you mean by that and where things are heading? Sure. So my previous venture, we combined uh, multi-object optimization uh, with uh, complexity science and artificial intelligence, especially machine learning techniques. Um, and um, I gave a TEDx talk on complex AI, coined the term complex AI, which basically is um, complexity science plus AI, right, combined together. And what that means is that you have a decentralized AI uh, autonomous agents, right? Mm. So, for example, society, we are a complex system. Right? Yeah. Internet is a complex system. Yeah. That means that you have many, many autonomous uh, decision-maker in the um, entities, right? Mm-hmm. Whether there are um, like, you know, people mm-hmm. or items or companies, these are all complex systems. Historically, AI been really bad in dealing with complex systems, right? That's why we don't have autonomous vehicles on the road is because driving is a complex problem. Uh, so what complex AI is, is actually combining complexity science uh, with machine learning, AI techniques and so on. And that was the specific key point that I mentioned like in 2019. But the problem that we had at the time specifically was that natural language uh, wasn't advanced enough. So you mm. couldn't have a, a proper hu- human machine interaction. So you, you could still like, you know, speaking programming and code and so on. But now with the advancements of LLMs, um, although we'll dive a bit deeper on why I think about them, um, I think we've got a, a really good understanding of how we can actually interact with machines and to be able to deploy them. So that's the kind of extension of complex AI to some extent, because complex AI ultimately is a bridge between narrow AI, mm-hmm. which are like, for example, all the services most likely used from Alexa and so on. All the chatbots sort of stuff, yeah. Because you cannot lift and shift them and put them elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so they're very, very specific to the problem that they are have essentially been built to solve, right? Absolutely. And they... they, they, they so to some extent, you could argue they're not AI because they can't they can't go outside the bounds of what they've what they've been programmed to do. To some extent, correct. Uh, I mean, the term of AI is a very hot topic, um, and there is that general AI AGI that mm-hmm. people talk about, which is uh, in, a, in a in in ultimately the the sphere of science fiction. Sure. Right, it doesn't exist. And there is that super AI that is even more science fiction, quite frankly. Yeah, Skynet and, uh, exactly. and Terminator, yeah. Um, so when it comes to the bridge between the narrow AI uh, to general AI, you have to infuse what actually happens in real world, mm-hmm. which we live in a complex environment mm-hmm. with complex being in it, right? So in order to do that, you have to infuse complexity into AI systems, mm-hmm. right? And that's what complex AI is, which is the bridge between the narrow AI to get to general AI. Mm. It's not the general AI, but is the bridge between them. Right, okay, it's it's the pathway that you have to tread, which I guess at the moment we're seeing somewhat a lot of uh, in the use of autonomous agents, uh, you know, so the, the, that are being spawned as a result of ChatGPT, that like right at the beginning when ChatGPT was first uh, kind of made public, you saw a spate of, of uh, um, open source projects uh, released on GitHub where you could spin up your own autonomous agents and then, 
uh, from there we saw autonomous agents that were spinning up autonomous agents and and you know you, you could essentially set a task which then would be followed through by one or multiple agents without intervention so it would ask itself ask and answer the questions of itself and then set up agents to solve the problems right well unfortunately genie is out of the bottle right yeah. and then i I should say, like, I blame OpenAI, uh, quite frankly. I, th I personally believe that OpenAI has killed the internet as we know it. Wow. And the reason I say this is Those because... strong words. <laughs> and I, I will explain why. Uh, and the reason is because right now we're seeing the death of internet as we know it. And the reason is because right now with, um, you know, synthetic data, with synthetic information, mm. with synthetic text, images, videos, and so on, without metadata, without actually determining the art, AI generated, we have infused internet with tons of them. I think there was a the data like almost 30% right now. Oh, so you're, you're talking about essentially disinformation, so deep fakes. And not, not just that, yeah. but ultimately this data yeah. right, being infused into internet Got it. and more and more. What happens is that the next generation of LLMs, the next generation of AI systems need to be trained on said data. Yeah. And guess what? Those trained data are trained on the previous data yeah, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. hallucinated yeah, okay. you do that five times and you just get pure hallucination the internet is dead yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a study actually yeah. that is like a photo photocopier right every time you get a worse uh, kind of like result right mm -hmm. in this case we've got five more tries mm. and that's it and we know for a fact that by two years time 90% of the data would be AI generated so potentially corrupt, potentially incorrect, absolutely, or, or certainly unidentifiable, right? You can't get back to the source. We don't know whether it's human generated or is AI generated. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Now that you, <laughs> now that you mentioned it, I'm sort of sat here thinking, okay, well, I can see where that, I can see where the problems arise in that, uh, to say the least. I mean, the, like I was thinking about it very, very narrowly again, in the sense of, we're already seeing it with with deep fakes, right? Like it is now, and I, you know, there was some, someone again, one of our previous guests, Bronwyn Williams, sort of mentioned on Twitter, like it's very hard now. You cannot sit there and be opinionated about something online because you don't know whether what you're seeing online is true or not. Uh, there is so much opportunity for um, you know fake images to come out. If we th think about the you know the war that has erupted over the over the the weekend, we're recording this in in mid October, um, and you know last weekend we've seen. Yeah the atrocities committed uh, by Hamas uh, uh, in Israel and, 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 and everything that is going to rise out of that. But, you know, you could imagine, even if it hasn't happened, you could imagine that bad actors could essentially use deep faked images to perpetuate whichever cause they want to perpetuate. And it's very hard to then distinguish what is fact from reality. Right? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, we've seen this in a, a battlefield, right? So when um, Russia uh, attacked yeah. um, Ukraine, we've seen videos, fake videos yeah. uh, from Zelensky saying that, um, you know, Ukrainians should put their arms down and so on. Um, so we see that, you know, bad actors are utilizing whatever technology they have available to them, right? So in this case... <laughs> In this case, having kind of like access to intelligence that can uh, create a very convincing disinformation and misinformation makes their jobs a lot easier, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's not just that. Um, you know, I think what OpenAI has done is extremely 
unethical and it's going to go down into the history books, quite frankly, with you. Uh, but actually releasing that. And now the problem is not they released it. The problem is now it's open source. Anyone can do it. So yep. it's end of the internet. Well, you need an API and you're not. There and is, and already there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. There is no way to fix this anymore. Mm. Like the only way I personally believe is the concept of um, curated internet. Yes. That's the only way. And that's what we aim to do at Platinum, right? Uh, end of the day is private curated internet, which well, is let, trusted. Well, let, let's actually get into that, right? So you're building Platinum to create a yeah. better social network. Yeah. So what is broken about current platforms or, uh, other than sort of this this issue around the, uh, you know, the AI and what, what's been happening with OpenAI? And how will Platinum change the nature of how we meet and interact with people, do you think? Very good question. So in, in case of uh, what's wrong with the current systems, right? So if you look into... Um, all social media systems, um, the are centralized algorithms. Mm -hmm. What that means, I mean, we don't really think about them, but we technically live in a dystopian future mm. if you ask someone in early 2000, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the reason I say this is because these centralized black box algorithms are making decisions for you without any no response from you, yeah. and they feed you anything they it it wants right so they basically conditioning you to become what the algorithm wants because that was the easier thing to code than actually ask you what you want it 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 strikes me right because i i post a lot on linkedin and recently i've been seeing some weird stuff like very low impressions on posts and so yeah. on and exactly to what i realized that i I'd, I'd gotten locked into a pattern of i must post every day because that will get engagement which will lead to leads or whatever it might be and then when that just stopped working in the way that i expected it my immediate reaction was kind of a visceral well there's something broken with the algorithm all they've done is change the algorithm right like they, they've just done what is what is expedient for whatever it is that they are trying to achieve to exactly your point right like they don't care whether i get leads what they care is that they maximize you know your time on platform i think linkedin is a great example i had a call with the linkedin team a couple of weeks ago and asked them like how the how the algorithm really works? Really, they that, won't tell me. Yeah. No, they have no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't have that's any what, idea. That's what, that's what they so, told me. So we've got this black box, right? That uh, ultimately make all these decisions, and they give you a dashboard to say like, oh, you have achieved this and that, based on no um, objectives for you to be able to achieve that. Right. Yeah. So again, what game am I playing if I don't have any sort of input to it? Right. Yeah, yeah. So now uh, in this situation, especially with LinkedIn, which I think I've got my personal uh, opinions about it, I think LinkedIn started f uh, for a very good reason, mm. which was to be able to connect uh, individuals in a professional setting. But now uh, everyone agrees um, that it's, it's a social be platform. It's becoming Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Right? it's a social platform. And not just that, but also the authenticity of human-to-human -human interaction is dead. Mm. And the reason is because you can now just go on LinkedIn, click on generate message for me, and it just sent, write a message for you and send it to me. If mm. I know that you've done that, right? I don't feel like you've why spent any time. would I yeah. even look at your message yeah. because you just clicked one bottom and you didn't even write it, yeah. right? And so not, not only that, I mean, and predating that, you have bots that, I mean, like I'm seeing this on a lot of the posts that I put out, You've now got people replying with with clearly what they've done is they've got a, a, a chat bot or an AI bot that is essentially looking at your post. Yeah. So so they've all, they've set up you know automatically for any post written by this person or containing these keywords, go in summarize a post and then spew it back as a comment. And it's and it's so 
obviously uh, happening. Actually, believe it or not, Ash, they don't use the third parties. It's a feature on you LinkedIn. It's an actual, it's, LinkedIn. It's yeah, an actual LinkedIn feature, which is crazy. Well, I mean, what I do know is like, I recently earned a top entrepreneurship badge. And I had Congrats. No idea. Thank you. I had no idea how I earned it. But the reason I earned it was because they've set up a new flow, which is they yeah. have what they call community articles. Mm -hmm. So they use AI to generate articles, which then they ask people to comment or, or to add feedback onto. And when you read these articles, there are everything that's wrong with the chat GPT world, right? Like you can tell that they're written by AI. You can tell that they, they are very superficial, like non, not deep kind of articles. And of course, what LinkedIn is then doing is getting our knowledge to then retrain Absolutely. those models as they move forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's been this noticeable shift in that direction. And it's a very uncomfortable direction for sure. And to be honest, the spam, right? I received yeah. 300 messages. 90% yeah. of them are spam on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. How, do you need another R&D, SEO, uh, developer shop in I India? I don't. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't want no. any of yeah, yeah, Please, no. <laughs> yeah, so um, there are so many issues right now with, um, you know, the de facto of ultimately online networking, which is LinkedIn, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it became a data farm, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Um, it, again, um, you know, Microsoft, what they've done is amazing, but it's kind of like being data farm for Microsoft at this sure. stage. Sure. Um, so we thought, uh, how can we fix this problem, right? Um, not just on spamming, not just on kind of connecting people, but democratization and empowering individuals' decision-making, empowering freedom of choice, mm -hmm. celebrating differences of individuals. And what we are doing is exactly the opposite of that, right? With LLMs right now, what we do ultimately is combine humanity's knowledge in one centralized system and give you that information on an average to an individual. So there is no personalization. But this is a problem with technology. I mean, like I've been saying this for, <laughs> for a long time, probably shouting into the void, right? But this is, th this is the reality of technology. Technology yeah. abstracts away to the average because that's the only way you can achieve scale. Because the more personalized you get, the harder it is to scale because you've got to personalize for everyone. Now, if you can do that with AI of some nature, then great. Exactly. Which is what I'm sure we're getting to. But for the most part, it's about how do I best fit as many as possible? That's right. And the outliers will figure themselves out. Absolutely, right? Uh, however, with the same technology, you can achieve the other way around, as mm -hmm. you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's all about empowering individuals to be able to uh, determine their own uh, interests, their own objectives in this case. I think what we've done, especially with social media systems, to be able to ultimately utilize our best knowledge around social psychology and neurology and all of these things into making uh, applications that are super, super addictive, mm -hmm. um, even more addictive than uh, you know most of the drugs out there. Sure. Uh, because they're driving your uh, dopamine, dopamine release. Yeah, yeah. Um, what we've done is basically maximizing profit for certain corporations to become uh, bigger and bigger by uh, ultimately creating these uh, very, very addictive systems called social medias, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the way is to uh, separate the social from the media. Mm -hmm. We believe that in at, at Platin that social uh, interaction are the key and the media is a distraction. Yeah. And that's what we truly believe. And what we want is to every individual on the platform to be democrat, uh, to given power and to be democratized, the decentralized AI to be able to set their own objectives. So you have your own algorithm in this case, not a centralized algorithm. Yeah. So you are essentially 
you are you are you are almost creating single node social networks, right? Or, for, ev so, for every individual. For every individual. That's right. So, without getting into the kind of technical details of this, this feels like something that three years ago we've been talking about with Web three, with kind of DA like DAOs, DAOs, um, decentralized organizations. Um, what's changed? What is making this possible now? No, I do agree that I think some people are going to hate me for this. Uh, but I think Web3 is just a, a marketing buzz. Uh, I mean, we've had many, 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 inve many investors on this on this podcast saying exactly the same yeah, thing. It just, there's no such a thing as Web3, yeah, quite yeah. frankly, with you. Yeah, Web3 blockchain and sort of yeah. anything that is tokenized is yeah, pretty much yeah. going to zero. Um, and, and, and they should, uh, quite frankly, most of them. I mean, there are some really good projects out there. Uh, but most of them are just, you know, I mean, I asked myself a year and a half ago when the market was booming, I was like, how many people really want, you know, Metaverse clothing company and mm. raise 10 million on their first round? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, this just doesn't make sense. And we see the result of that today. Yeah. Right? Uh, but in our case, it's different, right? So it's, um, you know, some people compare us to Metaverse. Um, we are not even remotely close. Um, yes, we are simulation based, uh, but there is no uh, 3D effect. So, you know, we are AI first. Uh, in fact, some of the people uh, in academia, uh, they say that we are going after the most bleeding edge of AI research right now. Um, and to solve that problem, we require amazing individuals from across the all great universities in mm. the UK and across the Atlantic uh, to be able to uh, do this. Um, but however, when it comes to the comparison with uh, blockchain-based and Web3-based systems, the difference here is um, ultimately decentralized uh, artificial intelligence, right? Because what we had previously was like decentralization as an idea mm -hmm. through blockchain. Uh, but in this case, it's different, right? It's not about uh, you've got kind of a blockchain that, you know, information is stored in a distributed ledger. In these cases that you've got every node, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, kind of like an um, AI um, um, version being um, kind of built specifically for that user. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there is, I mean, I, I, so I personally believe there's definitely, we have problems with social networks. I haven't been using, I haven't used Facebook for probably about 15 years. Uh, Twitter, I kind of come on and and leave again every, every X. yeah X. Sorry, no, but it's still <laughs> Twitter.com. Like I think they maybe I think they they messed yeah, up. <laughs> I think I think they changed it back. Maybe Elon maybe got a little bit scared. But like every time I see some other rubbish on there, I, it just turns me on further. And LinkedIn, to your point, like has become this kind of farm of just inauthentic content, and everyone sort of just vying for attention. And I'm probably one of those people. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm not so proud as to say that 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 I don't use it in in ways that satisfy my own goals. But the frustration is very much that the authenticity of connections that you make on LinkedIn are only kind of an inch deep. They aren't very, very, you know, they aren't deep relationships. No. And I think what it sounds like you're building at Platin is a way to create deeper relationships with people with whom you actually want to have a relationship. With Absolutely. And also maintain your current relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's quite the key, right? Because for us, it's not about accumulation of number of followers or connections that have zero results. It's your in, thousand true fans kind of scenario. It just, it doesn't have any difference yeah. in your actual uh, trajectory in your career. Yeah. Right? yeah. In this case, it's actually building and maintaining your current professional network. 
and expand based on your objectives, right? Yeah. Your objectives could be, um, you know, finding a mentor, finding a co-founder, finding yeah. anything, um, you know, it's a dynamic system. Yeah. Sam, it's been absolutely incredible having you here on the podcast. I mean, I think we, <laughs> I think I say this after every podcast, but we probably could have done another two hours or Let's two podcasts. It. Like at some point, I'm sure we'll get around to it. In the meantime, for our audience, where's the best place for them to find you online? Are you on LinkedIn? Twitter, where, where's the best place for them to look for you? <laughs> well, spoiler alert, LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, actually, like, you know, I've decided a few years back to um, delete all of my social medias. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was a great decision, quite sure. frankly with you. So the only place I am on, uh, which I was forced by my ex-co-founder to jump on board, uh, is LinkedIn. So I'm still on LinkedIn. So if you'd like to find me, uh, it's very simple. Uh, you can just put sambenny.com straight goes to my LinkedIn. Amazing. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here with me today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.